Lord God, what a wonderful time of year this is to celebrate the incarnation, this idea, Emmanuel, that God is not distant and far, but that God has come near. And we worship you for that. What God is like our God, who would be so humble as to wrap himself in frail humanity to speak words of love and grace to us. And we thank you that you were willing to do this. We thank you for the angels who proclaim this truth to the shepherds. We thank you for even the thousands of years of church history where people have remembered your coming and wait again for your coming that is proclaimed to be in the future. And Lord, we look forward to that day. So I ask that you would encourage us by your word this morning, that we would be blessed as we hear it and study it together, and that you would be honored and glorified through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I really want you to turn with your Bibles, in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 1. And I think that this is so significant that actually I'm going to stall for a minute and tell you there is a box in the back corner that's got a whole bunch of uh, just New Testament Bibles. If you do not have one, now's your chance. Get up. If you see somebody next to you who doesn't have one or doesn't have the app on their phone, then you can take the embarrassment for them and go get a Bible and pretend like you don't have it and give it to them, okay? Hebrews chapter 1, I want you to turn there because I'm going to get there in a minute, okay? I think that one of uh, the most difficult concepts to grasp in the Christian faith is that Jesus is God, It's a phrase I think that we hear so often. It's easy to give mental assent to this idea. But when you think about this, a day-old baby, totally helpless, essentially blind, ignorant, and speechless, that's Jesus in the first 24 hours of his birth. And then you consider the fact that at his birth, Jesus was all of those things, and yet he was still God. It's a tough concept, right? So tough a concept to grasp, I think, that it can only be grasped by faith. It doesn't make rational sense, although it's not exactly irrational either. But I would say that it gets even more complicated than that. How can the eternally pre-existent God, with no beginning, no end, God who has always been, and through whom all things have come into existence, how does that God give himself a beginning in creation? How is that possible? I'm not sure that it's an idea that we possibly truly can understand, even though I am convinced that by faith we can grasp the idea. And we're certainly not the first people in the history of the world or the history of the church to have a difficult, understand, uh, difficult time trying to understand what this means. That Jesus, the baby who would grow up to be Jesus of the man, Jesus the man, could also be God of the Jews. In John chapter 14, Jesus is having a discussion with his disciples and he's trying to explain to them, if they have seen him, then they have seen God the Father. Because Jesus and the Father are one in essence, Jesus then allows us to know God. But of course, much like this idea is lost on you and it's lost on me, whenever we try to truly wrap our minds around it, it was totally lost to the disciples too. They could not conceptualize the idea. I I thought of it maybe a little bit like this. Have you ever looked up into the sky to see a star that you thought was there? But when you fix your eyes directly on it, it disappears and you can't see it? But if you look at something 
close to it, you turn your gaze just a little bit another direction, then suddenly that star becomes visible again. Have you had that kind of experience? And I think that there's some similarities here. To try with any degree to absolutely comprehend and understand that Jesus, the baby in the manger, shares all of the attributes of our eternal God and Father, that he and the Father are one, that he is God, that he shares all of the same essence of God, is to try to wrap our minds and grasp something that we can only understand because God has enlightened us to perceive it and know it and comprehend it. It's, it's an idea that does not compute to the finite human mind. Okay? We can talk about baby Jesus year after year after year. I, maybe some of you are at this point where you're like, I'm just weary of Christmas because it's like the same thing over and over and over again. But just because we talk about it year after year after year does not mean that we truly understand how amazing and profound it is that God was born into our fallen world. The disciples certainly didn't get it when Jesus explained it to them. Even after he stated it to them outright, they still didn't have the capacity to understand. And it took the church throughout history, after the era of the apostles, several hundred years to attempt to define the divinity of Jesus in a way that allowed him to be both God, one with the Father and the Spirit, and yet distinct in his person as a man. So I tell you, this is an idea that's anything but easy to grasp. And I'm almost even sorry for launching into the start of my message uh, with such a deep concept without any prior warning. The Jesus who was born to the Virgin, whose birth we celebrate on Christmas Day, that Jesus is eternal in nature with no being, or no beginning, although he has a birthday. He is infinite in wisdom and understanding, although he had to learn his first words from his mother and his father. He was sinless in perfection, although he was born into a fallen world. He is holy, holy, holy in nature, although he was surrounded by sinful humanity. He has all the power to create simply by the word of his decree. And yet he made things with his hands humbly like a carpenter must do. He has all authority to judge, although he was born in a stable next to an ox and an ass. He is the one all creation worships, although only the shepherds came to adore him. And can someone please explain to me how this baby can be so much more than a baby. Can someone please explain to me how this child can contain all of the attributes of God himself, even as he is a newborn baby? Now, the two most common errors that people make in this regard to try and get their mind around this is, one, to either diminish the godness of Jesus and turn him into a creature made by God. That seems to be more comprehensible to our human minds. Or they go the other way and they say, God cannot possibly be one and still be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He cannot be one and three, so therefore he must be three, at least. The Mormons, they claim the first to be true, that the child born in the manger was not God. He was a God. He was a creation made by God. 
And then the Muslims and the Jews, they go the other way. They claim the second to be true. God cannot be one in essence and three in persons. So either there must be one God or there must be a multiplicity of gods. It, it just doesn't work. But this is the paradox that you and I celebrate at Christmas. Christ the Lord is God. If we've seen him, then we have seen the Father. To look upon his attributes is to look upon the perfect divine nature of God himself. And what a wonderful thought that is as our minds are fixed on this child in the weeks leading up to Christmas. Here is Emmanuel, God with us, so much more than a baby. Okay, all of that, I'm sorry, is to only preface what we have to look at in Hebrews, which I think has to be one of the richest expositions in the New Testament of the deity of Christ, the person of Christ. I think Hebrews ultimately is just a sermon about the excellence of Jesus. And so let's look at this together. I'm going to read a couple of verses and then, and then pause kind of in and out, which is why I think it's so important for you to have it open in your Bibles. Let's uh, start in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Verses 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Okay, as the author of Hebrews begins this epic sermon about the Christian faith, he starts with this zoomed out picture speaking about God the Father, first of all. We believe in a God who speaks, is what he asserts. God spoke to Adam, then he spoke to Abraham, he spoke to Moses, he spoke to David, he spoke through the prophets, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, just to name a few people to whom God spoke. Our God is not silent, he is speaking even today. But his greatest word that he spoke is the word that he spoke on that Christmas day. It trumps the prophets, although the prophets alluded to it and pointed to it and revealed it. His final word is the word through which he reveals not merely his law, not merely his will or his decree, but it's the word through which God reveals himself. It is Jesus, the divine word, the Son of God. And these are the days you and I live in, the days in which God has spoken to reveal himself by his son, which is an incredible idea. All of the Old Testament, we see people longing for this day. Okay, well, what is this Jesus like? Why is his coming so important? Look at verse 3. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ has come to reveal the invisible God. Christ is born so that we might see the Father and be reconciled to him. This is why the great Christmas song begins with these triumphant words, joy to the world, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Humans were made to gaze upon the glory of God, which is in part at least to gaze upon Jesus himself. That's how we see the invisible God. And for what reason has Christ come? Well, we've already said that he's come as God's final and most significant word to be spoken. That's verse 2. But verses 3 through 4 give us even more of a picture behind Christ's purpose for coming. Let me read verses 3 through 4. 
Speaking of Jesus, it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Okay, now this is a tricky sentence, and it only makes sense once we really look at the verses that follow it. And I think it's the word become in there that really confuses some people. But I want to point out a few things before we get to the wider context, and I try to refute those who would twist this verse by diminishing the glory of Jesus by calling him a creature rather than God himself, okay? First, the phrase, after making purification for sins. I think that's a phrase that's easily lost on a generation of humans who've been so brainwashed to deny the responsibility that we have for our lives and our actions. Uh, Science has labored very hard to get us to believe that we are innocent of responsibility for the evil and sinful things that we do. Maybe you've seen this come to light. It's not your fault, it's just your genes. It's your upbringing, it's your lack of education, your lack of opportunity, your family history, it's where you were born. It's the way that you were made. Any excuse possible, let's just not acknowledge what's true about who we are and the things that we do, that we are responsible. The simple truth is the Bible states that each one of us, we are sinners. So don't miss this. Don't miss the point that the death of Jesus was for the purification of sins, and not just sins in general that might be out there. Insert your name here. Christ's death was for you. Jesus died to absolve you of your sins, to purify you from your sin. And although Christmas is a joyful time, It's filled with warm feelings and wonder and happiness, isn't it? Don't forget how the life of this child will end. Splayed out on a cross in a horrific crucifixion for the forgiveness of your sins. Rejected by God the Father in order to purify you from all unrighteousness so that you might be made right. And so let's never forget that part of the story even in the midst of the joy of Christmas. The second thing I think we need to understand in verses 3 through 4 is where Jesus is right now. Let me read it again. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Only a few weeks ago, I remember seeing this story online, a very misleading article, uh, the title of it at least, something along the lines of, archaeologists open the tomb of Jesus. Did you hear about this? And of course, the point is it's clickbait online, right? The goal is to get you to click the article so they can make uh, you know, advertising money off of it, but I couldn't help myself. I was curious. I clicked the link, and it was as if the title was suggesting that they were going to open up the tomb of Jesus, and what are we going to find? Maybe his body will be in there. Foolishness, right? Foolishness. This is the tomb that's underneath the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is where traditionally Jesus is said to have been laid in the tomb. But remember where Jesus is right now. 
He's not inside a tomb. There is no body to find there. I think the archaeologists were sorely disappointed. It was empty. There were no bones. There were no DNA for the archaeologists to pick apart and study. Hebrews tells us where the Christ of the manger is right now. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is, he is ruling and reigning with God Almighty. And don't forget, understand this, God shares his glory with no other. He shares his authority with no other. He certainly does not share his authority or his glory with any creature that he has made. How inappropriate that would be. So it's an amazing statement about the person of Jesus to say that right now he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. This verse destroys the argument of the Mormons who would say that God created Jesus because God the creator would never share his majesty with a creature that he has made. Jesus didn't become God. He was God before creation even began. And God, who is the ultimate authority, he's writing these words, right? We can talk about the author of Hebrews, but ultimately God wrote Hebrews. And he anticipates the feeble attempt of our minds to grasp such a difficult concept and twist the truth into more comprehensible lies. And God does not allow for us to fall into that error that the child Jesus in the manger is merely a manifestation of some angelic being. Look at this. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And what's the implied answer to those questions, of course? Nobody, right? Angels who are God's creatures made to carry out his bidding They are not heirs to the throne of God. Angels are God's servants. They are not seated at the right hand of God, the majesty on high. They are creatures. They don't share in the divinity of God, although they may be spiritual in being. Unless we fall prey to this misunderstanding, the author of Hebrews, he he carries it even further. He takes another crack at it to make it even more clear. Look at verses 6 through 7. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Yet of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, these are all Old Testament references that the preacher of Hebrews is using to help us understand who Christ the child is. The angels are made to administer the will of God And part of their duty in doing so is to worship Jesus how? Just like they worship God the Father. They don't worship him as equals to him, but as those who are subordinate to the Son of God, like servants giving honor due the King. And this is why we proclaim in the Christmas song, Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. This is why in Luke... He records this, and the angels said to them, that's the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now look, I want to show you something kind of cool here that, that I think the ESV fails to bring out properly. And I looked at a couple other translations just to see. I think they all kind of fall short here, okay? But I have to confess, I'm going to get a little technical, which is why you need your Bible. So, are you ready for this? Okay, you can hang with me. I haven't put you to sleep yet. Okay. Verse 8. Look at it. Your Bible probably says something like, but, the son, but of the Son, he says. That's what the ESV says. But in the Greek, the words he says are not actually there. The author does not implicitly tell us who says the following words. And so the translator, the the Greek authors did this a lot. There was an implied speaker or person. And so the translator is forced to determine a speaker from what is implied. The Greek here literally says, but concerning the son. That's all, but concerning the son. Okay, now look back at the end of verse 6. It says, let all the angels worship him. So God here decrees that all of his angels should worship Christ Jesus, the Son of God. And I think then that in verses 8 through 12, we actually get to hear the worship of the angels. Okay, now I understand these are Old Testament references from the Psalms. Your Bible probably makes a footnote of that. So ultimately, it is God speaking. I think that there's a beautiful sort of double meaning here. And since the writer of Hebrews doesn't indicate who it is that is offering the following words of praise, I think it's fair for us to imagine that we get to peek into heaven and see what it is that the angels are proclaiming about the Son of God in worship to him. Listen to this, or read along if you want. They cry out, your throne, O God, or maybe even your throne, O Jesus, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord Jesus, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Note the reference back to verse 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, what? Through whom he also created the world. And so you, Lord Jesus, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Can't you just hear the worship of the angels in those words, giving glory to Jesus? The same glory they give to the Father because Christ is one with God the Father. He shares all of the same attributes with God himself. He's more than a baby because he is the eternal son of God. And just imagine for one second how all of creation must have drawn a quick breath in anticipation at the birth of Jesus. 
the coming of the Son of God, the light of the world, finally piercing the darkness, whose glory and grace had come to reveal God the Father. And after that quick breath, what a long, peace-filled sigh of relief that finally the Savior had come. But not to be misunderstood, the preacher of Hebrews reminds us one final time in verse 13. And to which of the angels has God ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now consider for one second that this child Jesus is the Son of God. He is one with the Father. He is victorious over his enemies, evil and death. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. I've been asked a couple of times in the recent past why I don't do altar calls at Maricopa Springs. Why I don't invite people to come forward and give their lives to Jesus or maybe raise their hands and give their lives to Jesus. And I would say that this is exactly why. Let me try and explain. Because probably every person in this room understands the idea that Jesus is the Son of God in their head. I mean, as much as our secular culture tries to deny that idea, if you go around and you ask people, what is Christmas about? They'll tell you, oh, it's about Jesus. You know, he was born. He's God. But I am pretty sure that not everyone in this room understands in their heart what it truly means for their life if Jesus is, in fact, one with God the Father. One is understanding in the head. The other is believing in the heart that leads to a radical change of life. Now, I could give an altar call. I could invite you to raise your hand while everybody else has their eyes closed and say that you believe. I could ask you to come forward boldly and profess that you believe while everybody else watches you. But even if you did those things, it wouldn't mean that you actually believe, would it? You may understand in your head, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you understand in your heart. If you believe that this child Jesus is actually God, then it changes everything, doesn't it? Isn't the whole world suddenly flipped upside down? If Jesus is actually God, then Christianity is way more than just a social club or a nice hobby. If Jesus is actually God then Christianity is about far much more than just living a moral life or being a good person. If Jesus is actually God, then Christmas is about so much more than presents or hanging out with family or time off from work or warm, fuzzy feelings around the Christmas tree. And if Jesus is actually God, then he must mean so much more to you than you just show up on a Sunday morning to go to church. And if you really understand this idea in both your head and your heart, that Jesus, in fact, shares all of the attributes of God the Father, then in the moment that you understand that, truly, your life is just flipped upside down. You pass from being the walking dead to being truly alive in Christ. But an altar call, an altar call isn't what opens your eyes to that truth. That's not what makes you believe this. 
I believe only Jesus can open your eyes to that fact to make you believe. Only God has the power to give life. He will give it if you ask him. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you, Jesus promises. And if you want this life, if you desire this kind of understanding that's more than just, yeah, there's a baby, his name's Jesus, big deal. An understanding in your heart that brings you into relationship with God, that allows you to know the peace that the angels proclaimed, then you don't need me to do an altar call. You need to simply cry out to God in any way that you have words to do at any point in time, in any place. But understand, only he has the power to help you understand and believe. If you were here last week, let me remind you of a verse John 5, 21, we looked at it. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Or as the author of Hebrews says in the beginning of chapter 6, therefore, therefore, let us leave the elementary principles of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. And this we will do if God permits. And so here's my plea for us as a church, okay? For any of you that don't actually know Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, who is one with the Father, then my prayer for you is that God would open up your eyes to that truth today, that you would ask and seek and knock, and he would reveal it to you, and you would believe. That's my prayer. That you would choose to surrender your life to him and believe, not only in your head, but by the power of God also in your heart. And for those of us who do believe, then I pray that at this Christmas, we would leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on towards maturity. Not getting caught up in the worldliness of Christmas, but celebrating, for Je celebrating Jesus for who he is joining in the praise of the angels as they proclaim his glory, remembering Christmas for what it is, the fulfillment of all of our waiting, the coming of our Savior, the past proof of his imminent coming return. Jesus, our Savior, who is more than a baby, fully God and fully man, whose throne is even now forever at the right hand of God the Father. Let me pray for us. Lord God, would you help us to understand these things? Lord, this time of year, life gets so busy. There's parties and cards to send out and friends to spend time with and end-of-the-year responsibilities at work and there's so much going on, Lord. It's so easy for us to forget about Christ in the manger being so much more than just a baby. And so I pray that you would give us the ability to comprehend these things, not just mentally in our heads, but gloriously in our hearts in a way that draws us deeper into fellowship with you. I pray that you would open our eyes to the beauty and the wonder of this time of year, that this is no ordinary child, but this is the Son of God. And I pray that we would, in our hearts, lift up our voices to praise you with the angels as we worship you for who you are. The God who is so transcendent, so above and beyond, and yet so imminent as to come 
and to put on flesh, to embrace us, to show us how much you care and you love us. And so, Lord, if there's any unbelieving person in this room this morning, I pray that you would do a mighty work on their heart. I pray that they would ask and seek and knock and that you would open the door to them, that you would give them faith and belief, that they would come to know you and love you and place their hope in you. And Lord, for those of us who already know you, God, would you, would you shake us, would you stir in our hearts so that we don't pass through these weeks ahead thinking only of Christmas and not at all of Christ. Lord, would you warm our hearts in a profound way that only your spirit can do so that we're drawn in to gaze on your son Jesus in all of his fullness and all of his glory. Amen.